1: This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look at the top stories in the coming week from our Daybreak anchors all around the world. Straight ahead on the program, the world's most valuable chipmaker reports earnings this week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. We'll tell you what to expect
2: from NVIDIA.
3: I'm Caroline Hepger in London, where we're looking ahead to the UK government's autumn statement amidst a gloomy economic backdrop.
2: I'm Brian Curtis in Hong Kong. We look at the US-China agreement on fentanyl. What needs to happen to disrupt the supply?
4: I'm Kayleigh Lines in Washington, where Congress has averted a government shutdown for now, with the real spending fight still
0: ahead. That's all straight ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak. Weekend, the business news you need to wrap up your week in just one 15-minute podcast. Available on Apple, Spotify, the Bloomberg Business app, and everywhere you get your podcasts.
1: Good day to you. I'm Tom Busby, and we begin today's program with one of the last important third quarter earnings reports, and it's a biggie. NVIDIA reports on Tuesday... Fueled by blockbuster demand for its artificial intelligence chips, shares up more than 230% just so far this year. Also, NVIDIA's latest breakthrough trip and the impact of U.S. restrictions on tech sales to China. For all that and more, let's bring in Bloomberg Technology host Ed Ludlow in San Francisco and Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Technology Analyst Mandeep Singh here in New York. Both of you, welcome. Thank you. Let's start with you. What are you expecting to see from Nvidia's
5: earnings and its outlook? So, so there'll just be a big focus on the data center business for Nvidia, right? And and in the context of artificial intelligence, Nvidia makes GPUs, graphics processing units, and those are chips that are basically capable of doing lots of parallel data processes at a very high level. It's kind of what you need in an AI accelerator to train the foundation models that power AI. And They've just seen massive growth in that data center business. You know, Last quarter, it was kind of 170% top line growth year on year. And going into this fiscal third quarter, the expectation is that that growth jumps to 230% approximately year on year. Um, but as you pointed out, it, the stocks had an incredible run in 2023 so far. The story is well known. NVIDIA is still the kind of market incumbent for this specialized AI chip and so expectations will be really high. And around the corner, they have their next generation chip, the GH200, which is due to go in production in the second quarter of next year. So, you know, that's how earnings always go, right? How did they do on the things we know they're doing? And when's the next big thing actually going to come and materialize in their financials? And I'm sure that 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 will be the discussion. Mandy?
6: Well, so from my perspective, you know, the last two quarters, NVIDIA has come out not only beat their numbers, but raise the guidance by, you know, almost 30, 40%. And now that, you know, it's happened two times, I, I think the bar is pretty high. But at the same time, we know the market is still supply constrained. I mean, everyone that we talk to keeps saying, you know, they can't find the GPUs, whether it's the A100 or the H100s to train the models, to uh, really invest in Gen AI. And so from that perspective, it still feels like the market is supply constrained. And that goes in NVIDIA's favor. Look, there, there are announcements from Microsoft uh, yesterday and then from AMD uh, saying that their GPU business could be $2 billion run rate uh, in 2024. But when you compare to where NVIDIA is, uh, we're talking about $60 billion in data center revenue next year or, or even higher it just tells you like they have the dominant share and they continue to be the preferred accelerator for anyone who is training these large language models
5: and mandeep let me jump in and kind of help out the audience with some of what you said so supply constrained means that basically uh, there is more demand for their ai accelerators or gpus than they can actually make right now and that's kind of important because the the risk or the unknown in the background is china And China, in the data center context, has been like 20 to 25% of their their business historically. And there are technology export curbs. And how originally NVIDIA got around that was to make a lower spec version of the H100 called the H800 or a lower spec version of the A100 called the A800. Those were GPUs specifically for the China market that were conforming with the U.S. Uh, technology export curbs that were put in place. Those curbs were then expanded, and you probably noticed last week some activity in, in the share price around reports that they're planning three new chips, next-gen, even lower spec, to comply with those with those curbs. But the reason I make that point, and, and I'm interested in your take on this, Mandeep, is that when you're supply-constrained, if one of your big markets, China, is, is a worry or a problem, there's plenty of demand elsewhere, you know, from countries and companies all over the world who are who are kind of clamoring to to get hold of those those specialist GPUs, and I know that that on the Bloomberg Technology Show and everyone I speak to, that's certainly the case, right? People would say, "Oh, I'll, I'll take some of those if we can get them."
6: Yeah, and uh, look, uh, the way to model the revenue for Nvidia or AMD, uh, you know, the lift from Gen AI is look at the hyperscaler capex. I mean, these are still the largest customers for these chips because all these chips are being deployed on public cloud, and we know Microsoft has raised their capex expectations. Uh, Google not so much, and uh, Jensen was there at the Microsoft event, so it just tells you that you know there is an appetite to get. These chips, however many NVIDIA has, and you know, if it's a hyperscaler, they're gonna buy it, even if they're investing in their own chips. And right now, the definitely the market seems like you know, uh, there is a huge appetite for whatever NVIDIA is making on the accelerator side,
5: exactly. And it's kind of important to like think about how those chips manifest in the real world. You just outlined it, but in the quarter gone, I actually visited NVIDIA and I got my hands on the now infamous H100. And when we're talking about out GPUs or literally semiconductors that are the brains behind training AI models, it's not like a chip you can just hold in your hand. You know, When people say, oh, I, I secured a cluster of 10,000 H100s, they don't just sort of have them in a bag slung over their shoulder. As Mandeep explained, these GPUs go in combination, several GPUs, into a box called a server design. That server design goes alongside dozens of others into the infrastructure that forms data centers we're talking about like massive scale here and what nvidia has done and and how it's been able to maintain its lead is that right now the work that's being done on ai is training uh, foundation models or large language models that have billions and billions of parameters tens of billions sometimes hundreds of billions of parameters only the h100 can can really handle that right now and what was so interesting Mandy you referenced the news from um, AMD but p- specifically Microsoft coming out with its own silicon this week um, the Azure Maya 100 you know from what I can tell that's an AI accelerator that's much lower spec right and and it will do some of the more the smaller models more basic models Um, I guess what I'm saying is like the market expectations super high because Nvidia has a lead and it looks like it will continue to grow and maintain that lead for the time being
6: I mean what I'm interested in is what the software strategy is so what people forget with NVIDIA is not only they have the accelerator, but they also had the CUDA software that really makes it easy to train your LLMs. And in this case, you know, if uh, the hyperscalers are spending 5 to $10 billion, every hyperscaler is spending on these GPU chips, how does it translate into the cloud revenue next year? Because right now when you look at the cloud estimates, whether it's Azure, uh, Amazon AWS, or Google GCP, uh, the Accelerator revenue is still not reflected in the numbers, so I'm curious to see what is the lag when uh, you know the monetization starts to show up in, in the cloud numbers. You
1: know, let's talk then, let's pivot to the newest chip that it's gonna develop and come out next year. You talked, Ed, about the h 100. It's gonna come out with an h 200. Sure. How will that be different, and how much more will it be able to handle
5: these large data sets? And, and, yes. And and, uh, go ahead. Uh, so what we're talking about is the Grace Hopper superchip, And it is both a GPU that we've just been talking about, a graphics processing unit, but also uh, it, it has within the design other components, a processor, but particularly it addresses the issue of memory. One of the challenges in artificial intelligence and training, um, large language models, which are basically the underpinnings of, of artificial intelligence is something called, um, the memory wall. Okay. And the memory wall basically is an issue where when you have a really big AI workload, uh, large AI models have basically poor data reuse. They're drawing on lots of data for their training, but when you deploy that AI, Uh, Technology as a chatbot or another generative AI tool, it basically has a poor uh, success rate at cycling data that's already there. And so it's really important to increase the memory capacity. So, in simple terms, the Superchip GH200 just has a more cutting edge. inclusion of high bandwidth memory. And GH200 is going to go into production in the second quarter of 2024, so it's not going to be out there in the real world at volume for some time. But from a sheer technology standpoint, this is now the battleground. If you look at AMD's equivalent, their AI accelerator, they lean very heavily in this idea that they've addressed the high bandwidth memory issue. But AMD ain't going to be in production at volume for some time as well. Well, a lot to look forward to. Our thanks to Bloomberg Television Technology host Ed Ludlow in San
1: Francisco and Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Technology Analyst Mandeep Singh here in New York. Catch Bloomberg Technology weekdays at noon Wall Street time and get the B-Tech podcast wherever you download. Coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, a preview of U.K. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's spending plans. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg.
7: The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City, Carter, and premier sponsor, q Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at cartereconomicforum.com.
1: This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. Up later in our program, a look at one of the key agreements reached by the U.S. and China following that presidential meeting in San Francisco. But first, in the U.K., Rishi Sunak's government will unveil its tax and spending plans in the coming days. Some positive economic data has given the prime minister a boost on achieving his economic goals. But the budget may not make for such optimistic reading. For more, let's go to London and bring in Bloomberg Daybreak Europe anchor Caroline Hepker.
3: Tom, Rishi Sunak has been on a roller coaster in the past week. He met one of his five key pledges to voters that inflation should come down below 5% by the end of the year. But he suffered a major setback on another to reduce illegal migration when the UK's top court said that his plan to deport asylum seekers to Rwanda was illegal. Add to that a controversial reshuffle of his top team, and it has been a busy few days. So, in the coming week, The Prime Minister, along with his Chancellor Jeremy Hunt, will be trying to reset the government's economic agenda. All this with one eye on a general election that is expected within the next year. The economic and fiscal situation in the UK is still pretty gloomy, with growth flatlining, inflation still well above the Bank of England's 2% target and rising borrowing costs. On Bloomberg Radio, I've been speaking to Elizabeth Martins, UK economist at HSBC, for her view about the situation facing the Chancellor.
7: Well, so UK government borrowing is actually coming in below what the OBR had been expecting. In the near term, it's it's okay, But, you know, the amount of issuance into the gilt market is concerning, I think, to everyone involved in in that market. And I think, look, we're we're servicing a debt level of, of, of nearly 100% of GDP um, at a rate, at rates at a 15 year high. So all of those things do worry me. And I think whoever wins the election um, is going to have some difficult choices to make unless we can find that holy grail supply side growth and, uh,
3: um, you know, grow the pie as Liz Truss used to say. So that was Elizabeth Martins, UK economist at HSBC, for her view. As the governing Conservatives continue to trail behind the opposition Labour Party in the polls, the Chancellor will be keen to make an impact with his autumn statement. And I've been discussing the context with Bloomberg Opinion columnist Marcus Ashworth, asking him what he thinks the context is to the autumn statement.
8: I actually think that the data out recently has been very good for the UK, and it's why Sterling's at 125 though i appreciate that's more dollar driven but you know look the economy is only at zero i mean that's a great result uh and i do think interest rates are have peaked and uh, and, and will come lower um the interesting point is he's got a little bit of wiggle room because if you look at the numbers year to date the public finances as ever are completely different from what the obr thought they might be uh, i'm not having a go at them it's just the way the system works but we're hmm. probably going to be about 36 billion or something like that better by the end of of this financial year, already about 20 billion better. And that means that probably we'll have to issue about 20, 26 less gilts and and T-bills. He can play around with stuff. He has some headroom uh, that could, of course, go away. And it's more a political question whether he wants to spend it now. Uh, I think he may. There's lots of hints already coming in, as as is usual in UK politics. Um, and I think inheritance tax is something he wants to do something about fairly soon. He may cut the the limit from 40% tax down to, say, I don't know, 30 or even 20%. Um, that's a sort of to keep the backbenchers yeah. happy a bit. But he wants to keep the, the dry powder for, um, for clearly the, the budget in March. And I think all they can, can really do, this government, is at least give the inclination that they will cut taxes in the future, wait for the Bank of England to possibly have cut rates, by the time of the next election. But, you know, they've got, not got much room, but they have enough room to do something. They could, of course, increase spending. But I think what they'll really do is set traps for the next Labour government.
3: What about any tax breaks, do you think, for UK businesses? Because that's the other big kind of lobby, um, is companies who want yeah. um, to be able to invest, to grow businesses, to get, to get um, well, an extension of tax breaks that they've enjoyed do you think that's possible would it be well no, received no, it, by markets it, it, should,
8: it should be possible it should be the right thing to do the question is how many votes are actually in there mm. and that's a very horrible situation we're in the right thing to do is extend these uh basically and uh, let uh, all investments investment be set up against tax which they've had to because again these obr rules they had to limit that to three years they're playing games uh of their around their own rules uh, it's a situation we're in, unfortunately, we're boxed in by this this ridiculous fiscal framework. And that's why, if you're investing, you would need a horizon longer than three years. At the moment, the tax breaks only out for three years. and It's about to expire. Um, they will increase that. Will they extend it permanently? I hope they do. So in, a set, in essence, all business investment can be offset against corporation tax. I don't think they'll cut corporation tax overall, but they'll increase the allowances. It's the right thing to do. I hope they do it. Whether they do it or not depends purely on the politics, sadly, here, and I think there is a chance they may uh, delay that or certainly put that into a a situation Mm. where it makes it all that pain will come in future fiscal years and not this current one.
3: There's also been a drive um, to try to turn around the fortunes of London listings, to try to get pension funds, and we've spoken about this before, to get them to invest into UK businesses. Now, today, we've been talking this morning on on Bloomberg Radio about um, the British ISA. I mean, is that the answer to the poor performance of UK stocks? Would it work? There's a chance they're going to do it?
8: It's the answer for UK uh, stockbrokers. Uh, for sure. <laughs> I mean, it's amusing to read some of the commentary on on uh, perhaps uh, great ideas coming out. Let's make a British ISA and increase the allowances. Uh, I, I'm very, very nervous when they're talking about putting our pensions, for instance, into sort of uh, you know infrastructure products. Please leave our savings alone. That, that's not where the government should be. If you want to give us greater allowances, fine, but don't alter or steer it in such a way that you are. Um, making you invest in, in something which we shouldn't necessarily be investing in. Uh, and I think that's it's a very dangerous subject. I do think there's, there's a halfway house, they can increase the allowance if you put it into UK things, but you, I don't think you should be altering the current allowances to invest around the world where you want to, because I don't think that's where government should be steering and uh, mm. picking winners. So uh, yes, they may play with this. This has been flagged quite hard, so I imagine there will be something whether they leave it till uh, the budget or they do it now, they also said, "I don't know." But yeah, we might get something on that to, to sound all pro-British.
3: The issue, you know, more broadly, is about the kind of inflationary pressures and what the Bank of England does. I mean, put that into context. Uh, how much further does the Bank of England have to to work to bring down inflation in the UK? Uh,
8: they don't have to do anything. They've overdone it. In fact, I think they the, the panic hike in. Um, June of 50 basis points. Two days later, they got the CPI number, which realized the actual fact they didn't need to do anything. Uh, And we've seen with the numbers out um, earlier this week that you know, particularly services inflation down to 6.6, that's already well above where the Bank of England expects to be 6.9 at the end of this quarter. Um, They've overdone it, as has I think the European Central Bank uh, as well, Um, which brings us into, as I said, I expect a rate cut before the next election. Um, As I think the economy, um, as I said, flatlining at zero, it's a fantastic Mm. result. Uh, Our economists expect an overall drop of one full percentage point in gross domestic product over the course of the next year. I think that's certainly possible. And I think we'll be talking more about the prospect of inflation coming down too quickly and and Mm. the worries, again, of getting below that target uh, a little bit earlier than they expected. So I I think the cost of living crisis, we're, we're now should we say, reverse earnings are now substantially above where inflation is I think food prices can can come down. We've already seen the energy stuff wash out. So I personally think we'll get some good news on that front.
3: That was Bloomberg Opinion columnist Marcus Ashworth. My thanks to him for joining me. I'm Caroline Hepker here in London. You can catch us every weekday morning for Bloomberg Daybreak Europe beginning at 6am in London. That's 1am on Wall Street. Tom.
1: Our thanks to Bloomberg Daybreak Europe anchor Caroline Hepker. And coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak weekend, the plan for a crackdown on fentanyl by both the US and China. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg.
7: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg.
1: I'm Tom Busby in New York with your global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. The U.S. government avoids another possible shutdown, at least for now, as we'll look at what's next for Congress. But first, the deal that President Biden reached with Chinese President Xi Jinping to combat the manufacture and export of fentanyl into the U.S., has been characterized by senior U.S. officials as the most important agreement coming out of that summit. So what's next? What steps are needed to disrupt the supply? For more, Bloomberg Daybreak Asia anchor Brian Curtis speaks with Michelle Cortez, Bloomberg medical science and tech reporter.
2: Tom, we focus on one of the key areas of agreement between President Biden and Chinese leader Xi Jinping, combating the spread of fentanyl. Fentanyl is a synthetic opioid produced by companies in China. China's said that it would take actions to prevent the raw materials of the drug, known as precursors, from being exported without controls. The precursors find their way into Mexico and into the hands of primarily two criminal gangs, the Sinaloa Cartel and the Cartel Jalisco New Generation. The gangs synthesize the chemicals into fentanyl and hire U.S. citizens for the most part to smuggle the drugs into the United States. So how does that chain get disrupted? Well, joining us now is Michelle Cortez from Bloomberg's Global Business Asia team. So in terms of how does it get disrupted, I suppose it's at the source. That's what this is all about. Can they do it?
9: Good news, of course, that China and the U.S. are working together on pretty much anything these days. We're a fan of that. But particularly when we're talking about something like the opioid crisis, which is killing... About 150 Americans every single day. And Brian, you're exactly right. What they're doing is they're going after the source material, the active pharmaceutical ingredient for the fentanyl. China is the manufacturing hub of the entire world. That is certainly true for pharmaceutical products. And fentanyl is an improved drug, it is used for real medical reasons. And a lot of that production comes out of China. But what is also happening is this illegal production that is being also done in China and for a long time was fed directly to the U.S. There was a crackdown on that. And what has happened since then is a lot of those precursor ingredients are now being sent to Mexico in the form of powders and liquids. They're being built into medicines, pills and and drops that are smuggled over the border, as you pointed to, getting to Americans, and it's that piece. It's actually nailing down who's making the active ingredients in China, making sure that only the legitimate stuff is yeah. shipped out to the right place.
2: So, do we know much about the way in to these companies and the flow out of the of the of the chemicals?
9: Right. So that's exactly the point. We don't know certainly as. People in general, as users, as reporters, we don't know who's making real fentanyl, who's making illicit fentanyl and where it's going. That is going to require the Chinese government to really buckle down and to put money, time and effort into organizing, and they're going to really have to put effort into figuring out which companies, which manufacturing plants are making what medicines and where they're sending it. And that's the piece. That's where the rubber hits the road, that they're going to have to actually do the investigations, the bureaucracy, the paperwork, all of that kind of nitty gritty stuff. It is not easy. It is not going to be fast. But that's the stuff that's going to have to happen in order to reduce the trade.
2: It's always something of a black box in China. It's not easy to know exactly what sorts of control there are. Do we know much about the controls that are already in place and and what needs to be added?
9: Well, we certainly know about the controls where the Food and Drug Administration comes in and reviews all of the manufacturing that's happening to make sure that it's being done on the up and up. So anything that is FDA approved manufacturers, those companies we know. The problem is, is that that's not where the issue is. That's not the companies normally that are sending out the illicit material. And so finding those companies, people who are doing things on the side, perhaps who have the knowledge, maybe they're getting the access to these ingredients for things that aren't actually medicines. They're used in many other things, painting and automotive uses, stuff like that. These these chemicals aren't just medicines. So there's a lot of different avenues where you can get into that. And we are going to really be relying on the. Chinese government to to, to buckle down and, and dig deep to find them.
2: Well, let me ask you this. If by chance we get serious controls put in place, what's to stop the Mexican cartels from accessing this material elsewhere? Is it is it really hard to make? Is it really China that specializes in this?
9: Well, we have seen since the crackdown on China in in about 2019 that a lot of this effort has shifted over to China, I mean, has shifted over to India. China and India are the two big active pharmaceutical ingredient producers for the world, and we have seen that shift. It is difficult to make medicines. We see that with shortages of generic drugs and many other medicines, you know, things for cancer, chemotherapies really important things. It is not easy to just cr- crank something up and start generating these medicines and rolling it out. So it would be difficult for Mexico to actually start producing it for these crime cartels to be doing it on their own. They need to get the access to it from somewhere. But whether or not they can shift all of the demand, all of the supply to India or other other manufacturing powerhouses, we'll have to watch.
2: And Michelle, from the medical science standpoint, uh, why is it that fentanyl is killing so many
9: people? It is all overdose. Fentanyl is a synthetic opioid, an incredibly powerful medication. It's 100 times stronger than morphine, for example. And the issue is that when you're talking about this illegal production of it, there is just not the safety guardrails that are put up. And it is so powerful, so potent and so inexpensive that it's easy for these crime syndicates to make their their pills and their other drugs slip in a little bit of fentanyl to kind of give the other ingredients a, a boost so that you're still getting some kind of a some kind of a, a pain relief, some kind of a you know a, a drug benefit from it in terms of illegal drug benefit but it's much less expensive. The thing is is that, po- that fentanyl is so powerful that if you don't do it in an exactly the right amount, then you can easily give somebody an overdose. And it varies. It varies for every person. It varies based on how much you weigh. It varies how much you've been using. It varies what you've eaten and done that particular day. So you could potentially take a, a a fentanyl pill, you can take an opioid, you don't even know what it is. You could think that you're buying LSD or heroin. And in fact, you get fentanyl slipped into it. And, and you get it from the same person, you think it's the same batch, one day, you're fine, the next day you've overdosed.
2: In any case, the spotlight has really been shown now on this this triangle uh, from China to Mexico to the United States. And we can all hope for progress on uh, you know stopping or combating some of the distribution. But will there be other benefits as well, more like just on educating the public about what's really happening here?
9: Well, anytime you can educate the public, that's definitely going to be a good thing. And absolutely, we know that certainly from the U.S. perspective, there's been a lot of excitement and and celebration around the fact that they have gotten some meeting of the minds with China when it comes to this. Because in the US, there has been effort made to reducing the supply to catching it early and to trying to reduce demand. But That is just so very, very difficult to do. And the hope is that by actually hitting some of that supply early, that you can reduce the the demand, you can reduce the access, you can reduce the give and take on that end. So when we have some positive news, that's great. Something welcome to tell Americans that something that is affecting every single community, every single town all across the country. Everyone knows somebody who has either died from this, been exposed to it, maybe had to give a life-saving Narcan dose to someone. Some of our colleagues actually carry it around with them just because they live in big cities and have had to use it. So anything that's positive definitely will take it.
2: Michelle, thanks so much for your insights. Michelle Cortez from Bloomberg's Global Business Asia team. Michelle is a specialist in health technology and medical science. I'm Brian Curtis along with Doug Krisner. You can catch us every weekday here for Bloomberg Daybreak Asia beginning at 7 a.m. in Hong Kong and 6 p.m. on Wall Street. Tom?
1: Our thanks to Bloomberg Daybreak Asia anchor Brian Curtis. And coming up here on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, the U.S. once again averting a government shutdown. For now, we head to Washington next. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg.
4: What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to
0: learn more.
1: This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. A stopgap, two tiered temporary funding bill finding a lot of support in the House and Senate and helping avert a government shutdown, at least for now. But Congress will have to do this all over again in just a few short months. Can they get a resolution done? For more, let's head to our Bloomberg 99 1 newsroom in Washington and Bloomberg Sound On co host Kaylee Lines.
4: Yeah, Tom, a shutdown has been averted. Congress has saved the holidays for themselves, and in fact, everyone already left town for Thanksgiving this past week. But come the new year, there is going to be a reckoning on Capitol Hill. The real funding battle still lies ahead. This stopgap continuing resolution only extends funding for some parts of government until January 19th and the other parts until February 2nd. And meeting those deadlines is probably going to prove pretty challenging. Here with more is Mike Dorning, who helps lead our congressional coverage at Bloomberg. So, Mike, Speaker... Mike Johnson has already said he does not intend to pursue another continuing resolution, no more stopgap measures. And it seems like hardline conservatives in the House do intend to hold him to that. So I kind of see two options here, one being do the work, finish all the appropriation bills in time. The other being shut down. How hard is it going to be to go with option one to make option one happen and avoid option two?
10: Well, actually, I think at the end of the day, it'll probably be something in between the two. Although it may involve a shutdown, um, they've sort of teed up what the the, the the conservatives don't like the omnibuses, but almost mm-hmm. like little mini buses, where you won't do all the twelve appropriations bills because it just looks like there's just divisions in the Republican Party. That are blocking them from even getting some of them out of the House with a Republican version of them, let alone, you know, actually compromising with Democrats and coming up with something. But it does tee up like essentially two tranches of um, global settlements, one for mm-hmm. part of the government initially and then some, one for the rest of the government In early February. And I think there's a very high risk of a shutdown, you know, in at least the first instance and probably maybe both instances um, because the divisions are just so great.
4: Well, and to your point on divisions, specifically the divisions within the Republican Conference, what Mike Johnson just did, pass a clean continuing resolution with no spending cuts, with overwhelming Democratic support, is exactly what we saw Speaker McCarthy do earlier this fall that ultimately led him to be ousted as Speaker. So I wonder if the question we're dealing with is not singularly, will the government shut down, but also a question of, will Mike Johnson keep the Speaker's gavel?
10: I think that If that becomes a problem, it'll be a problem in late January, early Mm -hmm. February, when all of this comes to a head. And and they are teeing it up for the sort of grand fight over funding the government to be then. You know, he he does come into this with some credibility, and any reasonable person would say, hey – he was barely in the speaker's job three weeks when mm-hmm. you know he's facing a shutdown. So you got to give him some ability to get give an extension. And he is really a sort of a core, very credible, very conservative guy. I mean, this is a guy who basically came up, Representing the Christian right in lawsuits mm-hmm. before he ever ran for elective office. So that wasn't some opportunistic, you know, positioning himself for the Republican primary. This appears to be who he is. So much like Nancy Pelosi was like this incredibly progressive person with this long track record, mm-hmm. and she was able to have credibility with progressives, this is a guy who is a true ultra-conservative. He called himself an arch-conservative, and that helps his credibility for now, until the rubber meets the road, the end of January, beginning of February.
4: So... The outlook is murky, to say the yes. least. Mike Dorning, one of the leaders of our congressional coverage here at Bloomberg in Washington, thank you so much. And Tom, the fight ain't over yet.
1: Thank you, Kaylee. That was Bloomberg Sound On co-host Kaylee Lines reporting from our Bloomberg 991 newsroom in Washington. And you can hear Sound On weekdays, 1 to 3 p.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg Radio. That does it for this edition of Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. Join us again Monday morning at 5 a.m. Wall Street time for the latest on the markets overseas and the news you need to start your day. I'm Tom Busby. Stay with us. Top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now.